this is Kabbalah and Coffee, and I must tell you that today is a very special day. Not only because it's Hanukkah, which it is, and which also makes it special, but also because this is our 50th, 5-0, 50th session on our book called Hecholtzu, Learning How to Love. So this text that we've been studying for a year plus, this is our 50th session. Now, when we started it, I can't tell you that I planned, you know, a nice, clean 50 sessions. Um, got it. So I, I, can't, uh, I can't tell you that I planned it down to the number, but 50 is a significant number. In Kabbalah, it says, yes, David, 50 nun shari bina, 50 gates of understanding. So it, it says, you know, interestingly enough, that in Kabbalah, it says there are 50 levels of understanding. It says that Moses wanted to reach all 50 levels. But even Moses, in his lifetime, couldn't reach all 50 levels of understanding, which is why he's buried. The mountain that the Torah tells us that he was buried on is called Har Nevoi, Har Nebo, which means Mount Nevoi. I'll say it in the Hebrew. If you divide three letters, Nun, Bet, Vav, According to Kabbalah, you could divide that word, nevai, into two, two words, nun, bai. It's the mountain that has 50. In other words, the meaning is when he passed away, he was able to finally attain the 50th level of understanding after the soul left the body. Well, my friends, today, this is our 50th level, and we're still here, which is the good news. The good news is we're still here, and we're still studying, and hopefully we'll, we'll have achieved the 50th level. So just to give you, because last week we formally concluded, we actually finished reading the text of, of the discourse, the 32nd chapter. Um, today, we're going to speak about um, the discourse, and I'm going to share with you a discourse that was authored in conjunction with this one that we studied 35 years later. The discourse that we studied was authored in 1898. The one we're going to explore today was authored in 1933. Now, here's where it gets even cooler. Okay, we started the discourse right after Simcha Torah, not this past Simcha Torah, but a year prior. The discourse, Hecholtzu, was, beg was begun on Simcha Torah in the year 1898. So it began in conjunction with when we started it, when we started studying it, again, a hundred and whatever years difference. Well, friends, this discourse that we're going to study an excerpt from today, which was said in conjunction with the one that we studied, but was said 35 years later, was actually authored for this Shabbat, Miketz, on Hanukkah in 1933. So the beginning was connected with our beginning and the end is connected in timeline with our end. I hope that makes sense. The point is that this, if you want to, let me use some contemporary language, the stars are aligning for our study together and everything lines up timeline, the beginning with the beginning and the end with the end. And I'd love to tell you that I planned this very deliberately, exactly the pacing and what we would cover each week, but to be honest, we've just been studying, and it happens to be, again, there's nothing by coincidence, but it, it just happened to work out magically and by divine providence that our beginning was aligned with the beginning of the discourse and the end with the end. Of course, it doesn't really end. Its lessons carry on with us, but uh, you'll see what I mean soon. 
Okay, so if I had to summarize kind of the major idea of what we've been studying over the last year and few months, I would say it's this. The greatest challenge of our generation, and really the greatest challenge of all generations, including the generation of Moses, is the challenge of getting along with each other. That's the greatest challenge. We can talk about external challenges from today to tomorrow. We can talk about, you know, existential threats that come from external enemies. But the greatest threat by far, the greatest threat by far is the threat within. Whether it's within ourselves, within our families, within our neighborhoods, within our communities, within our country, whatever that within is to you, and it's all of the above, all of the, the different levels that I mentioned, the greatest threats are always the ones that are internal, not the ones that are external. Because if you and I are strong inside, if we are fortified and standing together, you and I know that we can handle any, any threat from outside. The greatest threat, the only threat, is the one that challenges us from within, which is the entire purpose, the why and wherefore of this discourse, of this series, Learning How to Love. It's understanding how we can get along with each other so that, number one, we're getting along with each other, which is a benefit unto itself, and also how we're going to be strong to be able to stand up to any ex external threats that may, that, that may present themselves. It's all about learning how to get along with each other. Sometimes the closer we are to others, the harder it is to get along with, with, with them. That's the nature of love, right? We once had a talk. We once had a, uh, a guest speaker come in from out of town, and his lecture title was learning how to like the people you love, right? Sometimes that's a challenge, right? You love them, but do you like them? Okay, so, but without getting into, into the semantics, the point is how do we love our fellow as ourself? It's the most basic essential mitzvah of the Torah. It's the most basic essential element of society, of, of, of human beings, but it seems so elusive. So here's what I want to share with you. And this is something that you'll remember from our 49 prior sessions together. The one key, the one key that sabotages our ability to love someone else the one element that sabotages our ability to truly and genuinely love the other is the ego. It's the ego that stands in the way of love. The greater the ego, the greater the friction. The less ego, the less friction, <coughs> excuse me, the less friction is present. Which means, which means, that if we wish to get along with the other, whether the other is someone across town or across our own home, it behooves us to work on lessening our ego. Bittle, right? Not beetle, although the beetles were pretty decent. Bittle. This is about bittle. Bittle means... They were the ones that said all you need is love. All you need is love, yes. And what's the key? Yes, exactly. And what is the key to, to the love? It is Beatles. No, it is Bittle. What is Bittle? Like Rabbi Taub says, it's not thinking... Bittle? There you go. It, sound, it has a nice ring to it, right, Reeves? 
Bittel, yes, you can have that. Sure. Bittel is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not degrading yourself, humiliating, humiliating yourself. It's not discounting yourself. It's not, that's false humility. You know what false humility is? False humility is, ah, ich bin garnished, I'm nothing. You don't really think that, and I don't really think that. So this whole I'm nothing business, who says that, right? It's, it's, that's false humility. You say that when you want to get out of doing something, right? Somebody asks you to do something, now nah, you get, no, don't ask me, ask somebody more qualified. That's what we call false humility, right? But what's real humility? It's not thinking of ourselves. It's not being consumed with self. Real humility. Real humility is the ability to put someone else first before ourselves. We talked about, in the early stages of our study together in this, uh, in this series, we talked about the core distinction between Kedusha and Klippa, between holiness and the other side, right? The unholy side. And the core distinction is this. Kedusha, holiness, is marked by the attribute of Bittal, Self-nullification, self-abnegation, thinking of oneself less. And, and klipa, the forces that oppose holiness, that which represents unholiness, klipa is marked by yesh, or yeshus, which means ego, I, isness, I am. Once I know and feel and believe that I am very important, at that point, let the fighting begin. The moment I take myself very seriously and I, and, I, I, and I see myself as being the one that needs to be pampered and needs to be honored and taken care of, the moment that becomes my obsession, or not even obsession, the moment that becomes my hanacha, my, my platform, my foundation, that's it. The rest, relationships become much more difficult. So here's the interesting point. And this is emphasized in the discourse. So that this discourse, Hecholtz, what we've been studying, was authored by the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Dovber. His son, who helped publish this discourse, authored his own 35 years later, this Shabbat, Miketz, Shabbat Hanukkah, again, lining up in, in just an incredible way, um, for, for what we're studying today. So his son, the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, elaborates on his father's discourse, on the one that we studied, and describes the following idea, which, which I think will resonate. The more successful one is, the more learned one is, the more accomplished one is, and I don't only mean materially, I mean spiritually, the more danger there is in ego. Why? Because when a person studies Torah, when a person feels like they are achieving spiritual things, it is so tempting, it is so easy to fall into the trap of ego and to not realize that it's ego. Because what do you mean it's ego? It's, it's not ego, it's spiritual accomplishment. That too can be ego. That too, just because, just because one is proud of one's spiritual accomplishments doesn't mean that it's not ego. 
And by the way, I'm not saying we're not meant to be proud. We're allowed to be proud. There's no sin in being, in being proud of our accomplishments. But the question is, how big, how full are we of ourselves versus how, how attentive are we to what our purpose is? Is it about us or is it about the purpose? You might remember the last few weeks toward the end of our discourse, the last few weeks we spoke, we spoke about studying Torah Lishma, studying Torah for the right reasons. You know why that's so important? Because otherwise, Torah could be studied as an ego trip. Look at me. Look at how much I've studied. And when Torah is studied from that place, the danger is that it fuels the ego and it does the exact opposite of what it's meant to do. Torah is meant to bring us and really everything together. But if we study it from a place of ego, it can once again divide us and split us apart. Because I can say, look at me, and I've studied, and I'm so smart, and you. That's why there were communities before the Hasidic movement started, as I mentioned in a previous class. That's why there were communities. I mentioned this last week on the, the 19th day of, uh, the 20th day of Kislev. Right? There were communities where there were certain synagogues that you could only go into if you were a scholar. Deemed a scholar by whatever inner circle, so to speak, there was. That's not kosher. That's ego. That's not holy. That's not holy. The Baal Shem Tov would rail against Torah study that studied with ego. He said that to- the pages of Talmud studied with ego. Um, Check over there. Might be over there. Uh, the Torah study, the Talmud, the Talmud studied with ego, doesn't rise above this plane. And they're dead pages. Dead pages of Talmud study because it's studied with a, with, with, full of oneself, filled with ego. So what's the point? The point is, as we explore... As we explore this idea of getting along with each other, learning how to love our fellow truly as ourselves, the one key, the one key is bittel. The one key is letting go of ego. Lego my ego. No, let, letting go of the ego. That is the key to getting along. Which brings us into the holiday of Hanukkah. What we're going to do now is explore Hanukkah, and then I'm going to share with you the final chapter that we're going to study in this series together. Don't worry, we're going to launch a new series next week, so don't worry. We're not, uh, we're, not, we're not stopping Kabbalah and Coffee anytime soon. But the final chapter of, our, of this specific series, Learning How to Love, is going to focus on the placement of the Hanukkah menorah. Where do we place the menorah in our homes? Hold that thought. First, and we're going to study this according to Kabbalah, but first, we're going to explore the Talmud. What does Jewish law and the Talmud have to say about Hanukkah and about the menorah? So I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to study a section of Talmud together. Again, please keep this in mind. The entire, I'm just going to recap what I said until now. The entire message of this series is love. And what's the key to love? It's letting go of ego. Because the more we're... Ego, what's ego? Riva asks. What's, what's the ego? What a question. 
Ego is I, me, me, me. I, it's all about me. When it's all about me, that's it. That's it. There's no, there's no connection with, uh, with, she's listening. There's no connection with, um, we can't connect with anybody else because it's all about me. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a platform for relationships. So, so remember. So remember. Sorry? It's like being a two-year-old. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's about being able to let go of self and truly embrace the other. Oh, so here's the point. The more we're filled with a sense of accomplishment, even spiritual accomplishment, there's a tendency to, to negate the other. To say, oh, I, I know, I understand, I'm where it's at, you. And as, as we explore really early on in the discourse, it could be that there's a scholar, a genuine scholar, and someone who studies Torah, someone who prays, someone who davens, someone who does mitzvot, who can't stand someone else, and not even knowing who they are, not even knowing what, the, what they're about, says, no, 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 that person's no, no, they're, they're, they're no good discounts them and dismisses them. Why? Because they feel threatened by someone else. Where does that come from? Straight up ego. It only comes from one place. It comes from the ego. So today we're going to find out more ammunition. We're going to learn more. We're going to gain more ammunition to fighting the ego, to letting go of self. And we're going to do this through exploring the menorah, exploring the holiday of Hanukkah. We're going to start with the Talmud and then go into Kabbalah. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we are going to study together. Yes. Hmm? No. Okay. So let's jump in. This is Tractate Shabbat, page 21b. Can you guys see my screen? Yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Yes. Beautiful. All right. Let's do it. Now, you should know. Okay. Just a, a, a general note. There are tractates. Tractate is a section of Talmud on a specific topic. There are tractates on so many different Jewish subjects and Jewish holidays. There's a tractate on Rosh Hashanah. There's a tractate on Yom Kippur. There's a tractate on Sukkot. There's a tractate on, on Passover. There's a tractate on the holiday of Purim. But there's no tractate on Hanukkah. There is no tractate on Hanukkah. The section of Hanukkah, the Hanukkah laws, are contained within the tractate of Shabbat. So, I have open here Shabbat page 21b, which explores um, the holiday of, of Hanukkah in the context of lighting Shabbat candles. We talk about lighting Hanukkah candles. But you know what? I'm actually going to start a little bit later and then go back. I want to start where the Talmud discusses why do we celebrate Hanukkah? Here we go. Let's start from here. I, I will go back because the, where we started off on the page, where I just scrolled from, that's where I want to focus on. But let's get the background info on the holiday as explored in the Talmud about 1,500 years ago. Take a look. I'm going to read this in English and let's, uh, let's explore it together. The, the Talmud asks, Gemara, by the way, is the same thing as Talmud. Gemara is the uh, Hebrew or Aramaic word for Talmud. Talmud is the, is, is the word that we're most familiar with, at least in modern times. The Gemara asks, what is Hanukkah? What's Hanukkah? And why are lights kindled on Hanukkah? The Gemara answers, the sages taught in Megillat Tainit. In other words, this is the story that we have. 
on the 25th day of Kislev. The days of Hanukkah are eight. One may not eulogize on them and one may not fast on them. What is the reason? In other words, why is Hanukkah an eight-day holiday where we diminish mourning and sadness? So what's the reason? Here we go. Here's the story, the origin story of Hanukkah. When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary by touching them. And when the Hasmonean, Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was placed with the seal of the high priest undisturbed by the Greeks. And there was sufficient oil there to light the candelabrum, the menorah, for only one day. A miracle occurred and they lit the candelabrum from it eight days. The next year, the sages instituted those days and made them holidays with recitation of Hallel and special thanksgiving in prayer and blessings. The Talmud says very clearly that Hanukkah is all about the miracle of the oil. The Greeks had defiled the sanctuary and the oils. And when the Hasmoneans, a.k.a. the Maccabees, when they were victorious over the Syrian Greek army and recaptured the temple, they searched, only found one cruise of oil. It was only meant to last one day. It lasted for eight days. It was a miracle. And the next year already, they had instituted the holiday of Hanukkah as an eight-day holiday. That's the origin story of Hanukkah. So a few things that we need to note about this story. Number one, number one, the, um, the Hanukkah story takes place over an extended period of time. It wasn't like they came in and defiled the oils, and the next day the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, um, you know, sent them out, sent them packing and, uh, and, and, and reclaimed the temple. It took a while. It was a long, a long fight. There were internal battles as well amongst the Jewish people. And ultimately, after a lot of effort, and a lot of uh, um, divine assistance, the Jewish people, led by the Hasmoneans, were able to reclaim the temple. Now, why did a miracle happen that the oil for one day lasted for eight days? You may be familiar with this, um, just, but just to, to fill in the gaps of the story or the potential gaps of the story, they only had enough oil to last for one day, but it would take another, it would take eight days to press new kosher olive oil for the, for the temple's menorah. And they, were, they weren't sure what to do because on some level you could use the non-kosher oil, the defiled oil, the non-holy oil for the menorah. If you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. But as it was the beginning of the re-inauguration of the, of the temple, they, they felt like they had to do it right. They had to do it in the right way, in the best way. And so they didn't want to compromise. So they used the best oil, hoping you know, something would happen, and indeed it did. Now, how did the miracle occur? I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to, to, to just unmute yourself and, and let me know how you think the miracle happened. This one cruise of oil that lasted for eight days. Oh, so one second. Let me paint the picture for you um, before I ask my question. The temple menorah, you know what? Answer this. This is another question that, that I want you to answer. The temple menorah, what did it look like? How many branches were on the temple menorah? Six, six with a middle. So there were seven branches. And by the way, the middle one wasn't the shamish, wasn't the helper. It was part of the mitzvah. So it's seven branches, three on each side and one in the center. So there was, it was a seven branch menorah. 
Um, yeah, Adina Malka has, has a seven-branch menorah. That's, uh, that's impressive. You pulled, Adina Malka pulled that straight off of the Arch of Titus, right? That, that is straight off of the Arch of Titus, um, uh, that menorah. According to Maimonides, by the way, that's not how the temple menorah looked. It actually had diagonal branches. According to Rashi, Maimonides, and others, and according to the Rebbe, it also had, according to Rebbe also, it had seven, it had three diagonal branches on each side with one in the center. So when they were lighting the menorah, they needed to put in a certain amount of oil that it should fill all the cups, all seven cups, and burn you know, overnight. They would light it in the evening, afternoon and evening, and it would light until the next morning. Okay, that, that was the way the menorah was lit. Every afternoon it was lit. Um, they only found enough oil to light the menorah to fill up all seven cups for just one day. But I want to ask you, here's the question I wanted to ask you. How did the miracle happen? Walk me through the miracle. So what did they do? Day one, they found the oil. What did they do? They took the oil and what did they do? How do you understand the story? Unmute yourself. There's no wrong answer here. I mean, I mean, it's, it, the Talmud doesn't tell us how it happened. So I'm asking you, what did they do? They took the oil and, the, and what did they do with it? Unmute. Theorize with me. What do you think? They used just one, one candle. Ah, okay. So one option is they just lit one candle. Okay. What else? What else? What do you think? Go ahead. Anybody? There's no, again, I mean, there's no, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it shouldn't be an intense test. It's just a question. How do you think? Walk me through it. Walk me through. They, ha- they, have, they have now a bottle of oil. They have seven lamps to fill. This is going to fill each lamp just for the one night. So what do they do with the oil? What do you think they did with the oil? They fill up what they can. I want to ask you a question. They filled it up all the way or they filled it up only an eighth? I don't want to lead the witness. I'm not intending to lead, to lead it. It's a leading, leading suggestion. <laughs> it is a leading suggestion. That's why I wanted to leave it open-ended. But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know. One second. Reva's got an answer. What do you say? An eighth? Reva says an eighth. Okay. one candlestick all the way. You think they did one all the way? Okay. Yeah. All right. But then if they would have... And then you're putting a new wick in that will allow the oil to burn longer. And so I, I vote for the eight. I'm, I'm with Susan. Okay, good. Who thinks they just went all in? They just filled up all the all the lamps and they just said, listen, that's it's it is what it is. Anybody think that? I feel like I'm leading you in that. I'm I'm not intending to lead. David, what are you saying? You look like you're th- you're thinking something. You're saying go. You're saying they went all in. Okay. Because they had faith, so they filled up all the cups. They filled up all the cups. Riva, yes. Hashem did a miracle. Yes. Okay. So you should know. You should know that there really is no wrong answer, and the reason that I say that is because there are different commentaries and different opinions as to how it unfolded. So some say they only put in an eighth. If you have. Um, I don't know, we, we should just give like a random measurement. Let's say each cup 
there were seven cups, seven lamps. Let's say each one held, um, well, make, we'll make it easy, eight ounces. So they only put in one ounce of oil for each one. And the first night, that one ounce of oil lasted the whole night. That's one answer. It's one option. Another option is they filled up the lamps. I mean, there's really only a few options, right? They filled up the lamps all the way. So they put in all whatever. I'm just giving in this random example, which I don't know if it's accurate or not exactly with the measurements. They put in all eight ounces for all seven cups. And what happens, will, what will be is what will be. There are different opinions. Some say, well, according to that opinion, right? So then what, what happened after the first night? So some say that it burned all the way down, right? And miraculously, the jug of oil replenished itself. Are you with me? Some say the lamps replenished themselves with oil. So it burned down and then somehow... Some say the oil only burnt an eighth of the way down. It became like turbocharged, concentrated. It's like that laundry detergent. You used to have to use a big cup, now you only use a little cup because it's super concentrated, right? So it became super oil. where It only needed an eighth to burn through one night. There are different opinions. One second. There are different opinions as to how the miracle unfolded. But either way, I only bring that in because the, 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 we all know the origin story of Hanukkah is that the oil lasted for eight days, but sometimes we don't think about how logistically it happened. So it's important to, to, to have, to at least know the, a, few, a few of the different options. Different options as, as the commentaries discuss. The Rebbe, by the way, has a very long discussion about this, a very um, intricate um, philosophical and legal discussion about how the miracle happened. And uh, the Rebbe's approach is unique. He said it was the, the, the utmost of a miracle, the impossibility of impossibilities, where the oil remained burning. Anyway, it was a, it was a combination of, of quantity and quality with the miracle. It's, we have to say that, that analysis, is, it's a long analysis for another time. But either way, there are different ways in which we can imagine the miracle unfolding. Bottom line is the miracle, the oil lasted for eight days, which leads us to another question. That question is, if the oil was supposed, to only, was supposed to last for one day, and it lasted for eight days, how many days are miracle days? Again, the oil was supposed to last for one day, but it lasted for eight days. So how many days constituted the miracle? Help me out here. Eight. Not eight, because it was supposed to last for one day anyway, right? Naturally, the oil was going to last for one day. So how, and it lasted for eight total. So how many days were miraculous mi miracle days? Well, the first day was a miracle. But we could also consider... Hold on, hold on. Hold on, Adina Malka, go ahead. The first day was? The first day was a miracle because it was a miracle they even found a jug of pure oil. Okay, good. I like that. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Good. That's what I... I, was, I agree. Yes. Okay, so you say the finding of it was also a miracle. Okay. Um, the question is asked, though, it seems like there's only seven days of miracle because it was supposed to last naturally for one day anyway, so... Seven days is the miracle, so why do we celebrate for eight days? Various answers are given, including what Adina Malka and, and Don agree with, which is that the finding of the oil itself constituted the first miracle, so that's the even day one is a miracle. Some say that the first day miracle, or that, that one day of the miracle is, is celebrating the military victory of getting the Greeks out in the first place, etc. So you have different opinions, 
But according to the, the position on the miracle that we just discussed, that on day one, the, the oil only burned one-eighth of a way, turns out even the first day was a miracle. Are you with me on what I just said? In other words, if we imagine what I said, imagine you fill up the lamps full oil, and day one, it only burns one-eighth down. Is the first day a miracle also? Yes. Yes. In other words, each day is the same miracle of it only burning one-eighth because it became supercharged oil. I hope what I just said makes sense, but I'm just connecting what I said before about how the miracle transpired with why we celebrate for eight days. I'm connecting those two ideas together, and now it's time to move on. So that's why we celebrate Hanukkah, and that's why we have Hanukkah for eight days. Now it's time, now it's time to explore how we light the menorah and where we light the menorah. So let's go back to the Talmud. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let us begin. Yes. They had only eight, and we have nine. They had only eight, we have nine. That is true. They, well, they had seven, and we have nine. By the way, this is important. Riva just reminded me to get back to, uh, to what I was saying before, which is that the reason why, the reason why our um, menorahs don't look like the temple menorah is because we're not trying to replicate the temple menorah. If we were trying to do that, it would have seven branches total, including the center. But we're not trying to replicate the temple menorah. We're trying to create a candelabra that has eight candles, and the, eight, and the ninth is the, is the helper candle, which we'll explore in a moment. So let's take a look now at the Talmud. So I went back, I went up, I scrolled back up on, on our page to explore the section that talks about how we fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Again, today is day three of Hanukkah, so it's a very timely discussion, and we're going to explore the Kabbalah of this. The sages taught in a brighter. The basic mitzvah of Hanukkah is each day to have a light kindled by a person, the head of household, for himself and his household. In other words, to fulfill the mitzvah, the basic mitzvah of Hanukkah, you light one candle each night. So first night of Hanukkah, one candle for the entire household. Second night, one candle. Third night, one candle. Fourth night, one candle. That's the basic mitzvah. And the Mahadrin, the Talmud continues, those who are meticulous in the performance of mitzvot, kindle a light for each and every one in the household. Which means that you light not one per family, but you light one per member of the family. So if you have a household, if you have a four people in the household, you would light four candles the first night, four the second night, four the third night, four the the fourth night, you would light four each and every night. So again, the first level of observance is one per household. The second level, higher level observance is one per member of the household. And the Talmud continues. And the Mahadrin, Mina Mahadrin, the ones who are even more meticulous, adjust the number of lights daily. Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagree as to the nature of that adjustment. Beit Shammai say, on the first day, one kindles eight lights, and from there on, gradually decreases the number of lights until, on the last day of Hanukkah, he kindles one light. And Beit Hillel say, on the first day, one kindles one light, and from there on, gradually increases the number of lights until, on the last day, he kindles eight lights. So, we have now, in the highest level, we have a distinction. The highest level of doing the mitzvah is to create a distinction between the different nights of the holiday. But as to how we make that distinction, there's a difference of opinion. Beit Shammai say, we go down. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Beit Hillel says, you go up. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now you and I know that we follow Beit Hillel, right? Everyone lights one the first night, two the second night, three the third night, four the fourth night, etc. We increase each and every night because in Jewish law, whenever there's a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, we always follow Beit Hillel as they were the majority back in the day. Now, Beit Shammai, very few times in their disputes, the halacha, the law is in accordance with them, but sometimes it is. Typically, it's with Beit Hillel, and this is no exception, and that's why we light in ascending order. But all of us are lighting Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin, the best of the best. When it comes to Hanukkah, we don't cut corners. Remember I told you before about the, the Maccabees? When they came into the temple, they could have used the impure oil. Remember I told you about that? They had impure oil. They had plenty of impure oil. They could have used the impure oil. When, when there's no other oil, you use what you got. But they said, no, we're going to put in, we're going to go all in on the pure oil. And a miracle happened. And because of their dedication to doing it the best, that's why this mitzvah, like no other mitzvah in Judaism, that's why this mitzvah, everybody does it in the best way. Show me another mitzvah that everybody does it in the best way. Everyone has, there's different levels on which everyone does different mitzvot. When it comes to Hanukkah, it's unheard of to light one candle per household every night. Who does that? Who observe, have you ever seen a Hanukkah observance where you have, where you have, uh, have you ever seen a one candle menorah? Walk into any Judaica store in the world, in any synagogue, doesn't matter what denomination, right? Walk into any Judaica store, find the menorah with one candle. That's the basic mitzvah. One candle, no one does it. Everyone does one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Everyone ascends. You know why? Because Hanukkah is a, is a holiday in which we go all in. Next, next point about Hanukkah. The next point about Hanukkah is how do we light the menorah? But specifically with the how is where do we light the menorah? So take a look at the Talmud once again. And this is where the Kabbalah is going to come in. Let's explore... Let's see if I can find it now. I've been scrolling back and forth a little bit. Oh, here we go. Okay, take a look. The sage is taught in a brighter. It is a mitzvah. What is a brighter, by the way? A brighter is hailing. It's, it's a teaching from the, the era of the Mishnah, which precedes the Talmud by, 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 by a few hundred years. The sage is taught in a brighter. It is a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp at the entrance to one's house on the outside so that all can see it. I'm going to say that one more time. It is a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp at the entrance to one's house on the outside. Why? So that all can see it. If he lived upstairs, he places it at the window adjacent to the public domain. And in times of danger, when the Gentiles issue decrees to prohibit kindling lights, he places it on the table, and that is sufficient to fulfill his obligation. So, the Breitah, quoted by the, Mish, quoted by the Talmud, by the Gemara, cites a few things. Number one, the mitzvah is Pesach Beito Mibachutz, to put it by the entrance to the house on the outside. Why? Should be facing the street. If you live upstairs, and the implication there is that you don't have access to an opening that faces the street, I guess back in the day, if you lived upstairs, the, 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 if you lived in a duplex, the bottom, I don't know what, what to call it, bottom dweller, that doesn't sound right. The one who lived in the bottom, right, um, would be the one that had access to paraphernalia facing the street. So what do you do if you're upstairs? 
So you put it by the window. Times of danger, when the government prohibited kindling lights, so you can't have it facing the street or even in your window, you should place it inside on the table, and that's enough. In other words, you do it to publicize the miracle to your own family. So here's the deal. When it comes to Hanukkah, there's a big, a big piece of the mitzvah is to publicize the miracle. We don't find this by any other mitzvah. We don't find an obligation on Passover to eat your matzah while strolling the streets. Never doesn't say that. On Passover, you're supposed to eat the matzah while walking down Fifth Avenue. And you eat the matzah, and that way everyone sees that, that you're that, the, the exodus. We don't have on Shavuot, eat your cheesecake or read the Torah while on the belt line. I mean, it does, it's not a thing. Right? And yet, when it comes to Hanukkah, it's you light, you light the menorah, petach betomi bachutz. You light it by the door facing the outside. And if not the door, then at least the window facing the street. And if it's impossible, all right, you light it inside. What are you going to do? You're not, you're not supposed to put your life at risk for this. So you light it inside if there's no other option, if it's, if it's forbidden by the government. But otherwise, it's meant to be publicized. This is really important. It's really important. When it comes to the exact placement of the menorah, however, outside, there's a disagreement between Rashi and Tosfot. Rashi, the, one of the primary commentaries on the Talmud, and Tosfot, Rashi's own grandsons. So they disagree sometimes in, in how they understand the Talmud. So, and we'll see soon the dispute. We're going to learn it in, in, in the context of Kabbalah. And we're going to see something else, because I'll ask you one more question before we get into the Kabbalah of this. And the last question is, when you put the menorah outside, uh, in your, in your doorway facing the street, let's say, right? The, what the Talmud says, you put it in your doorway facing, facing the outside. When you do that, where in the doorway do you place it? On the right side or the left side? You understand my question? You place it in the doorway. Where? In the middle, you can't get in and out. Do you put it on the right side or the left side? Right side. Now, one second. What's on the right side of the door? What's on the right side? At least when you enter, what's on the right side when you come in? The... Mezuzah, right? When you walk in, it's not when you walk out, it's when you're coming in, right? Facing your home. The mezuzah, the scroll, goes on the right side of that doorway, right? The right side. So where do you put the menorah? On the right side? On the same side as the mezuzah? Or on the other side? What do you think? The other side. The other side. Halacha is you put it actually on the left side. Now, Donna, you had a good... You had a good idea, which is the right side, because we always go right, but the mezuzah is already there. So according to one understanding, we try to surround ourselves with mitzvot. We already have one on the right, so if we're doing a menorah, we do it on the left side. Does that make sense? Yes? Not so fast. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So mitzvot to be public with the menorah, is that part of the reason that we have the grand menorah public lightings? Yes, yes. The Rebbe said, um, the Rebbe instituted this a few decades ago. He said, look, part of the Hanukkah experience is, is a public publicizing the miracle. So we should not just light the menorahs in our own homes or whatever. We should use whatever platforms we have to, to, to spread the message of light over darkness, good over evil, etc. We should spread the positive message of the holiday. So Hanukkah, like no other holiday, is meant to actually be publicized. Persuminisa, we're meant to spread the light. So on Hanukkah, that's why Chabad around the world is very active in, uh, in, in publicizing the miracle. By the way, the first big public menorah, the first larger than life public menorah was actually in San Francisco. Was in, um, 
Union Square. Is it a place called Union Square? Is that correct? I get that right? Yeah. I believe Union Square. And it was done by Dina Schusterman's father, who was then Chabad of Berkeley. So he arranged the first mega menorah in, uh, in Union Square. And you can look it up and you'll see pictures. I, there may be video, may not be video, but there's definitely pictures of that first uh, lighting in the 70s. Okay, getting back to our conversation, let's now explore the Kabbalah of all of this because it's really important, especially in our context of love and, and, uh, and getting along and, and managing ego. So I am going to share with you my screen. Here we go. This is going to be chapter 8. Interestingly enough, 8 is a significant Hanukkah number, as we've discussed up until now. We're going to, we're going to study now chapter 8 of the discourse, 35 years after the discourse that we've been studying was published, 35 years later, uh, the previous Rebbe authored another discourse on the same topic on Hanukkah this week in 1933. This is what we're going to study right now, the final chapter, chapter 8, which speaks about Hanukkah and ego and the menorah and love, and it all comes together, and this will be, this will be our, our final chapter in our conversation on this, in this series. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's explore it together. Chapter 8, same book, page 91. If you have the book, it's page 91. Chapter 8 on Ahavas Yisrael, on loving your fellow. Here we go. The above will help us, will enable us to understand the statement of our sages of blessed memory, Intracted Shabbat, which, by the way, we just studied. It is a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah lamp by the doorway of one's house on the outside. So let me unpack the sentence. Let's do this together. So he says, the above, what we said above about ego and bittel, abnegating ego, managing ego, suppressing ego, and about unholiness and holiness and about love and about the danger when one is accomplished spiritually, the danger that that can inflate one's ego and create animosity toward others. So all of the above will help us understand what it says about Hanukkah and the Talmud, that's a mitzvah to place the lamp of the, the Hanukkah lamp by the doorway of one's home on the outside. I.e., he says, the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lights entails illuminating that which is, quote, on the outside. This already is getting us into mystical territory. Let me explain. On a simple level, it means, as we've been discussing, uh, we just recently, as I just recently mentioned, this, on a simple level, it means that we're meant to publicize the miracle. Let others know about the meaning of Hanukkah. But according to Kabbalah, it goes even deeper than that. It's and not to take away from the simple meaning, but it goes even deeper. And it means that the whole purpose of Hanukkah and the whole purpose of lighting the menorah is to light up the outside to light up the metaphorical outside, to light up whatever is outside, whatever is outside the realm and sphere of holiness. That's what we're meant to illuminate with the Hanukkah lights. Now, let's continue inside. Now we get into, into a legal analysis, which will then help us with the Kabbalistic, the mystical analysis. Rashi, the primary commentary on Talmud, and Tosfot, his grandsons, differ as to what exactly is the outside that is to be illuminated. Rashi holds, Rashi's opinion is, that this refers to the courtyard 
as he explains, but the lamp is not to be placed in the public domain, rather in one's courtyard, for the houses in those days would open on to a courtyard. Let me explain that. I'm going to stop sharing so I can see you. Let me explain what he's describing. Back in the day, people, the homes, faced a common courtyard. So when the Talmud says that you place your menorah, your candelabrum, on the outside of your uh, on the doorway of your house facing the outside, Rashi says, doesn't mean the outside street. It means the outside common courtyard. Are you with me on what he's saying? Does that make sense? Yes? In other words, it's outside, but it's still friendly territory. Yes? It's outside, but not fully, fully outside. It's not like public domain outside. It's like your own little neighborhood, your shtetl, right? It's like... You light it, not in your house. You light it facing the outside. But which outside? Your courtyard with your neighbors. So it's still somewhat insular. Okay, let's keep on going inside. That's Rashi's opinion. Okay? Um, Tosfot, however, again, Rashi's grandsons, is of the opinion that the outside refers to the public domain and explains that the Gemara is referring to a house that lacks a courtyard and so opens directly to the street. If, however, there is a courtyard before the house and is in front of the house, then it is to be placed at the entrance of the courtyard to illuminate the public domain. In other words, I want to give you, I wish I could, I could open up a whiteboard and draw it, but I, I just, well, let's just picture it. Um, okay, so here is, okay, so we're just going to go like one, two, three levels. Not an inner courtyard and houses face it, but let's just go one, two, three. So you have house, courtyard, I need a third hand, and, right, house, courtyard, street. One, two, three. Rashi says, you place your menorah at the entrance of your house facing the courtyard. Tosfos says, we're not talking about a courtyard. We're talking about a house that's straight on the street. If there's a courtyard, you would actually not place your menorah facing uh, on the entrance of your house. You would place it, the entrance of the courtyard, facing the street. Bottom line is, Rashi says you always put it at the entrance of your house facing the courtyard. And Tosfo says if there's a courtyard, you would put it at the entrance of the courtyard facing the street. In other words, go public to the public domain. Let's continue inside. Actually, let me just quickly look at, at y'all. Does that make sense? The, di the distinction? Yes? Okay. Let's go back in. Let's go back into the top, to, to, the, uh, to the analysis. Um, okay. There are questions that now require explanation. Okay? So here are the questions that we need to analyze. Number one, why must the Hanukkah lights illuminate the outside? He's getting not literal here, he's getting conceptual, right? Why do the Hanukkah lights need to illuminate the outside? If it is indeed outside, again, spiritually, the domain of holiness, how can it be illuminated? Of what benefit is the illumination? And if it is indeed possible to illuminate it, why is it considered outside? Such a, such a, a, a delicate analysis Kabbalistic, mystical analysis of what seems to be a straightforward legal text, but we're looking at it now from a conceptual place, from a, from a spiritual conceptual place. He says like this, the outside means that which is unholy. So he says like this, if it is unholy, so then why are you bothering with it? 
And what's the objective? How can it be illuminated? What's the purpose? If it's truly outside. And if it's not truly outside, if it's salvageable, then why is it called outside? So what does it mean? You're supposed to light your Hanukkah menorah, place your menorah facing the outside. Why? If it's outside, it's outside. Lazam gain, let it go, let it stay outside. And if it can be, and if it's not so outside, so then why call it outside? All right, we're not answering the questions yet. Let's continue. I didn't share this with you, but it's also in the Talmud. I, I mentioned it. Later on in the Gemara, in the Talmud, we learn on the next page, 22a. Where is it to be placed? I.e., this is what I asked you before, right? Which, on what side of the doorway? When you place it in the entrance of your home, right? Or the, or the courtyard, according to Tosfot, if it's facing, if there's a courtyard in between. So when you place it in the doorway, which side? On the right or on the left? Oh, by the way, Donna, look, you have, uh, you have support here. Rav Acha, the son of Rava, says, on the right side, on the right of the entrance to the house. Rav Shmuel of Divta says, on the left. So, I, I, was, I was too quick to tell you what the final halach is. It's important to know that there's actually a dispute in the Talmud. Not so, I'm sure, not shockingly. There's two opinions in the Talmud. One says on the right, and one says on the left. By the way, if there was another side to the doorway, I'm sure there would be another opinion that would say, uh, you know, another dimension. But we have two opinions, one on the right, one on the left. What's the halacha? The law is, as I mentioned, on the left. So that the Hanukkah lamp will be on the left, and the mezuzah will be on the right. In other words, we should be surrounded by energy, by, by spiritual energy. So instead of loading up on the right side, we're already fully engaged on the right side. Holiness is already, you know, rocking our world on the right side. So we want to balance it out. We get a little bit on the left as well. So we got the right side. We got the left side. Oh, now we're spiritually charged. So you walk in to your home. You walk out of your home. You got the mitzvah symbols everywhere. Yeah, Susan, go ahead. Oh, just asking a question. Is it, if this has anything to do with the sephirot and having that balance of energies on the right and left to combine that to bring beauty, I don't know if that's where it's going or not. Yes, yes, stay tuned. Stay tuned as we, as we explore the Kabbalah of right and left and, and all of this stuff. Yes, we're going to get into that in, in a moment. Yeah, that's, that's where we're headed. Um, okay. So we described the mitzvah being to illuminate the outside upon which we asked, well, what is outside and why is it called outside? And if it is outside, then what's the point? It's, it seems unholy. And if it's possibly, if, it's, if, it, if it is possible to make it holy, then why do we even call it outside? So we then segued into the discussion of right and left. And we explained that the final halacha is, the law is, we place the menorah on the left side of the doorway, opposite the mezuzah, so that we have the mezuzah on the right and the Hanukkah lamp on the left. Now, take a look at his question. That's again the Talmud. Now he asks, the previous Rebbe asks in the mystical text, what is the connection between the mezuzah and the Hanukkah lamp? Why is it that both must be at the entrance of the house? In other words, conceptually, these are the two mitzvot that you put in the doorway. Why? What's the connection between a mezuzah and a Hanukkah lamp? Right? Why is it that both must be at the entrance of the house, except that the mezuzah must be specifically on the right and the Hanukkah lamp specifically on the left? Let's continue. So that's the question. In general, in general, as we've discussed uh, countless times, and as was alluded to before in our discussion, in general, the right takes precedence 
over the left. Right? In general, we always prefer the right over the left. Chesed over Gevur. This being so... Oh, now I ask another question. This being so, the text should have read in the Talmud so that the mezuzah will be on the right and the Hanukkah lamp will be on the left. Do you understand this question? In other words, we always preface right before left. So when the Talmud says that you put the Hanukkah lamp on the left, it should have said, why? So that the mezuzah should be on the right and the Hanukkah lamp on the left. It should have mentioned right first and left second. Look at what the Talmud does say. I'm going to go back. What does the Talmud say? The law is on the left. So the Hanukkah lamp will be on the left and the mezuzah will be on the right. It prefaces left first and right second. So the previous Rebbe asks, why are we prefacing left before right? We should say right before left. Again, it sounds semantic. sounds like, well, who cares? But we're making a mystical analysis of it. And in the analysis, we're, we're, we're noting that it should have said mezuzah will be on the right and Hanukkah lamp will be on the left by stating instead, let's back inside, by stating instead so that the Hanukkah lamp will be on the left and the mezuzah on the right, we are given to understand that the mezuzah is considered to be on the right only when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left. In other words, what it seems to imply, what the Talmud seems to imply is that when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left, that's how the mezuzah energy is on the right. It seems like it's the Hanukkah lamp with that left energy that fuels the mezuzah to be on the right, and that's why the order is in that way. Thus, the conclusion, again, we haven't explained it, but he's, he's noting from the analysis, thus, it is the placing of the Hanukkah lamp on the left that enables the mezuzah to be on the right, and this is what we need to understand. What does that mean? What does it mean that by placing the Hanukkah lamp on the left... Right, so what does it mean that by placing the Hanukkah lamp on the left that it enables the mezuzah to be on the right? How do we understand that? How does that make sense? Let me explain the question. You know, you and I would think that the mezuzah is always on the right side. So you have the mezuzah on the right, and then you have now, you know, Hanukkah come lately, you have now the Hanukkah lamp on the left. You have the mezuzah on the right or the Hanukkah lamp on the left. But then it should have said that. It should have said, why do you put the menorah on the left side? To have the mezuzah on the right and the Hanukkah lamp on the left so that you're surrounded by mitzvot. But the fact that it reverses the order and it prefaces the left before the right, even though the right should come first, even though the mezuzah should come first, because it's always there. The fact that it says, no, 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 that you put it on the left so that the Hanukkah lamp should be on the left and the mezuzah on the right, that signifies almost that the Hanukkah lamp is has the priority, it's, it's the primary, and the mezuzah is the secondary, or at least the one leads to the other, that the Hanukkah lamp, by being on the left, enables the mezuzah to be on the right. And, and although this doesn't yet make sense, this is the path that we're going to follow as we explore this mystically, that there needs to be the Hanukkah lamp and that energy on the left in order for the mezuzah to be on the right. What does that mean? That's where we go from here. In order, literally, the next sentence, in order to understand this in terms of man's spiritual service, in other words, in order to understand, to make sense of this for you and I, it is necessary to preface the verse that says, you shall make me a sanctuary and I shall dwell among them. This verse comes from the book of Exodus, where God is commanding the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the spiritual sanctuary for God in the Midbar, in the desert. And God says, you shall make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. And our sages note immediately that why the them, right? It's, it should say, you shall make for me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell among it. 
Sanctuary is singular. Make me a mikdash, make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in it. Why among them? Who's the them? So comment our sages of blessed memory. So our sages tell us the verse does not state in it, but rather among them, thus implying that each and every Jew is a dwelling place for God. In other words, let me explain that the fact that it says, God says, build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them means not that God wants a building, but God wants a personal relationship. God also wants a building, by the way, but God also wants a personal relationship with us, with us individually. So it's not enough that we have a space. Yeah, we have a temple, we have a synagogue, we have a, you know, a token place where you know, good things happen. No, 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 no. God wants a relationship with us. You and I are a temple for God. And Rashi explains, Rashi explains, you shall make for me a sanctuary to mean you shall make a holy edifice for my name's sake. In other words, create a space that is conducive to me. That is what God wants. God wants us to be a holy space that is conducive for his presence. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Regarding the entrance, so here we get, we, get, we, get, we get very practical. Regarding the entrance to this holy edifice that is found within every Jew. And again, he uses Jew as a way of conversation here because you know, the Mishkan was directly commanded to the Jewish people. But it really means for every human being that wishes to create a space for God. What does the entrance look like? How do you build the entrance? Feng Shui. Kabbalah feng shui. How do you build the entrance to God within your own heart, within your own space? Regarding the entrance to this holy edifice that is found within every Jew, there must be a mezuzah on the right and a Hanukkah lamp on the left. And the mezuzah is only considered to be on the right when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left. Again, we're explaining this not in legal terms with regard to the mitzvah of Hanukkah, but also in personal terms regarding our own building of a home for God within ourselves, the entrance to which is the doorway of our home. Right? We're me- Again, God says, build me a home. Where? Not somewhere in Jerusalem, not somewhere in the middle of the desert, but in you. I want you to be a home for me. And what is the entrance of that home? That's a holy space also. And that constitutes, that has a mezuzah and a menorah. A mezuzah on the right and a menorah on the left. And as the Talmud tells us, First you have the mezuzah on the left, and then you can have, sorry, first you have the menorah on the left, and then you can have the mezuzah on the right. First the left, and then the right. It's only considered to be a mezuzah on the right when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left. It is by place, it is the placing of the Hanukkah lamp on the left that enables the mezuzah to be, to be meaningfully on the right. So now what does that mean? We're still left not understanding what it means. We have ideas and concepts. We have the, 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 the structure We have the foundation of ideas, but we don't have the ideas fleshed out yet. This is what we need to do right now to really flesh out the idea. What does it mean that you and I are are a temple for God? What does it mean that that there's an entrance to the temple? And what does it mean that the entrance is designed with a mezuzah on the right, a menorah on the left, and it's only by having the Hanukkah menorah on the left that we have the mezuzah on the right. So here we go. Now we jump in. The Hebrew word mezuzah, and that's the way it looks in Hebrew right there, by the way. Mezuzah is composed of the letter Mem and the two words Zu and Ze. Again, you have the Mem, Mem, which is 40. 
And then you have the word zoo. Not in English, right? Zoo is uh, animals. But zoo is different. Zoo in Hebrew. And zeh in Hebrew. Right? So mem, 40, zoo, and zeh. Mezuzah. So again, I'm going to read this inside. The Hebrew word mezuzah is composed of the letter mem. And the two words, zoo and zeh. Mem. So let's, let's, let's explain what that means. Mem numerically equals, uh, mem numerically equal to 40 refers to Torah. For it corresponds to the 40 days that Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu was on Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. So let me explain. Um, divine revelation happened on the sixth day of Sivan in the year 2448. And that's when God spoke the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people. Immediately following that experience, the next day, Moses goes up the mountain. The Torah describes this. Moses goes up the mountain to learn the rest of Torah from God, comes down 40 days later, and encounters the golden calf. But today we're not focusing on the golden calf. Mainly the point is that Moses was on the mountain studying with God for 40 days. For 40 days. So that's what the mem of the mezuzah, right? Mezuzah, mem, 40. Mem is the gematria of mem. The numerology of mem is 40. So that corresponds to Torah. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So that refers to Torah. Likewise, in addition to the written Torah being associated with the number 40, likewise, the oral Torah, the Mishnah, begins with a mem and concludes with a mem. The first Mishnah in Mishnayot in the Mishnah begins Me'emasai, which is from when do we start saying the Shema at night. But Me'emasai begins with a mem, with a m sound. It concludes with a mem. Bashalom, which ends with a mem. So the, the written Torah is associated with mem 40. The oral Torah begins and ends with the letter mem. So that's what the mem of mezuzah refers to, refers to Torah. Zu refers to the Jewish people, as, is, as in the verse, Am Zu Kanisa, you have acquired this people. So Zu, which means this, refers to the Jewish people. And Zeh refers to God, as it is written, Zeh Keli, this is my God. So we have Zu and Zeh. Zu and Zeh both can be translated as this. Zu is a euphemism for the Jewish people, and Zeh is a euphemism for God. So we have three parts of the word mezuzah. Mem, 40, which is Torah. Zu, the Jewish people. And Zeh, God. Thus, let's put all the pieces together. Thus, mezuzah, taken as a whole, alludes to Torah, the Mem, the Jewish people, the Zu, and God, the Zeh. For Jews are united with God through the Torah. Again, let's understand. He's trying to connect three, three points of a triangle almost. Right? We have Torah is one point, Jewish people another point, and God is a third point. Right? Jews are united with God through the Torah. As in the statement, there are three things that are bound up one with another. Israel is bound with the Torah, and the Torah is bound up with God. You know what? Maybe not a triangle, because that implies you know, a, certain, a certain look. Maybe it's more of like a... Um, you know, um, point A to point B with, uh, with, 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 with a line in between. So you have the Jewish people, you have God in the middle. The line that connects us to God is Torah. 
So that's what mezuzah is. Mem is 40, which is Torah. Zu is the Jewish people. Zeh is God. And how do we connect with God? It's through Torah. This then, okay, this then, see there's a lot of footnotes here, is alluded to by, this is an, a bit of an analysis, we're going to skip it, by the word mezuzah, right? This is what this is a deeper meaning, a mystical meaning of the word mezuzah. The mem, which is Torah, unites the zoo, the Jewish people, with zeh, with God. Okay, so that's mezuzah. So this is the meaning, he says, of the above statement, that the mezuzah is on the right when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left. The mezuzah is considered to be on the right only when one carries out the spiritual service represented by the Hanukkah lamp on the left. And now I'm going to jump in to explain this a little bit more. He's going to explain this soon, but let me explain it right here. The mezuzah is on the right only when the Hanukkah lamp is on the left. Your mezuzah, your Torah study, your, the, wisdom, the divine wisdom that you're studying connecting you with God is only of value and only of meaning. If you have the, if you have the menorah, if you have the Hanukkah lamp, on the left side. Otherwise, your mezuzah could lead to ego. And that's what we've been saying consistently today. Sometimes we think of ego as solely deriving from material pursuits and narcissism and all these you know, ugly, you know, lower physical tendencies. But it's not true. Throughout this discourse, we've noted, throughout this series, we've noted that ego can also be spiritually induced. You can have an ego from studying a blat gemara, from studying the Talmud. You can have an ego from studying Kabbalah. You can have an ego for doing a mitzvah. Ego can be inflamed from spiritual activities as well. And so what, what is the mezuzah? The mezuzah represents spiritual pursuit. Studying Torah, mezuzah, the mem, 40 days of Torah that Moses got. The zoo, us, the Zeh, God, we connect with God through Torah, and it could be wonderful, but it could also be an ego trip. It can be something that fills ourselves with pride, swells our head, and makes us feel better than someone else. What ensures that your mezuzah on the right side is still kosher? How do we ensure that the mezuzah on the right, our Torah study, is kosher? It's when you have the menorah, the candelabra on the left. What does that mean? Back inside. You see where we're going with this? Yes? How do we make sure that our spiritual... Think about it. It's not only Torah study. Prayer, meditation. It could lead to an inflation of, of, of self. Like, look how great I am. I, I did all this study. I did all this meditation. I did all this prayer. I did all these good deeds. That guy can't stand. Doesn't do anything. Right? It's possible. It's possible that we, can, that we can use holiness in a very unholy manner. That holiness paradoxically could fuel ego, which is the ultimate measure of unholiness. Ego is the antithesis to unholiness. But it's possible that in the pursuit of holiness, one can walk away with the very definition of unholiness. That's the irony. How do you prevent that? You have to place a menorah on the left side. That's why it comes first, by the way. It's only when you have a menorah on the left side that you make sure that your mezuzah on the right side is kosher. 
But what does that mean? What is the menorah on the left side? Kabbalistically, right? Not, I mean, practically, it's put a candelabra there. But what does it mean mystically? To have the menorah on the left side that keeps in check the mezuzah on the right side, that it doesn't lead to ego. What does that mean? Back inside. The function of the Hanukkah lamp, as we discussed from the Talmud, is specifically to, this is where we're up to. I'm highlighting it. The function of the Hanukkah lamp, as described in the Talmud, is specifically to illuminate the outside. And we asked before, who is the outside? And literally, it means the street. Well, according to Rashi, it means the courtyard. According to Tosfot, it means the, the public domain. But what do you mean, who's the outside? I mean, mystically, who is the outside? So here he explains, what does it mean to illuminate the outside? To earnestly weigh one's spiritual status. Outside means you. Me. Not, sorry, not you. <laughs> outside means me. <laughs> illuminate the outside means introspection into self, into the dark, shady, ugly corners of our own selves. The outside is not someone else's outside. It's our own outside. The outside in Kabbalah is not someone else. It's self. It's those areas that we don't ask because we prefer the don't ask, don't tell policy. We prefer not to be so introspective. We prefer to gloss it over by telling ourselves, it's all good. Look, look at my accomplishments, it's all good. We're afraid to peer into those corners lest we find something that actually requires a little bit of, uh, of upheaval. I don't mean upheaval, I mean, um, yeah, kind of upheaval. A transformation. It's easier to pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, look at all the stuff that I'm doing. It's harder to look outside. I don't mean outside to someone else. Outside within self to the areas that are not yet so clean and sparkly. When one does so, when one does so, when one does look outside within, again, outside, according to Kabbalah, is not outside. It's inside in the dark corners. When one does so, when one does look inside, outside, or outside, inside, he will come to the realization that although he engages in the study of Torah and fulfills the mitzvot and even busies himself with acts of kindness, there is nevertheless found within him, quoting from Nitzavim, from Deuteronomy, a root whose bitter fruit is venom and wormwood, yeshus and sinaschinam, ego and baseless hatred not, can't stand the other guy. Even the scholar, even the mitzvah performer, even the one who gives of him or herself and does acts of chesed, acts of kindness, if one really looks, if one really places the light inside to those outer areas, to the dark spaces of our own personality, if we're really being honest, we'll realize that yes, there is a trace of ego. And yes, because of that ego, sometimes I have a problem with the other guy. And the problem is not them, the problem is me. This is what the mitzvah of Hanukkah is all about. It's about searching within the crevices and the corners of our own personality. It's not getting, it's not getting um, seduced by all of the wonderful things that we do and pretend like it's all good and everything's good and everything's perfect and nothing can be approved, nothing can be improved. It's understanding and recognizing and shining a light on those areas, the darker parts of our personality. And the implication of this is, by the way, 
Just like everybody has a mitzvah to light the menorah, and everyone's mitzvah is to illuminate the outside, that everybody has a trace of ego and a trace of sinat chinam, a trace of baseless hatred. And I know that's a strong word, but there's a trace of that within everyone. There's, everyone has someone that they don't get along with. They don't get, why? And we can blame it on them. And that's the excuse. But the truth is, it comes down to our own ego. This is what the Hanukkah menorah is meant to, to, to shine a light on. This is why he says, back inside, this is why the midst of the Hanukkah lamp is, specific, is fulfilled specifically on the left. On the left. Why the left? And we asked before, why the left? Right is always the holy side, but that's the point. Holiness is on the right side. What's the point of the Hanukkah menorah? To look at which side? The unholy stuff. The, 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 the skeletons in our closet, the ego, the hatred. Hatred, again, is a strong word. The dislike that we have sometimes for the other guy. For no reason other than they, 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 they impinge on our own ego. In order, why is it on the left? In order that one uproot the evil of the evil inclination, the Yitzhahara that dwells in the left-hand side of a man's heart. Kabbalah, it says that the ego... The, sorry, it says that evil dwells in the right side of our hearts. I'm sorry, let me say that again. In Kabbalah it says that, e- that, that ego and evil dwells on the left side of our heart. Whether it means literally or metaphorically is another conversation. But it's considered to be on the left side. So on Hanukkah, when we're meant to look into the darker parts of self, notwithstanding all of the beautiful light that we bring into the world, are we getting along with the ankle? Are we getting along with uh, Maisha, with Chaimel, with Sarah, with uh, whoever it is, right? Are we getting along with them or, are there, or is there friction? And if there's friction, what is it within me that's not allowing that, that relationship to be good? What, which, what element of my ego is getting in the way of reconciling that relationship? That's what we're meant to be doing. That's the spiritual work on Hanukkah. That's what we're meant to be doing. In addition to lighting the menorah and eating, eating uh, latkes and donuts and spinning dreidel, we're meant to be doing the spiritual work of introspection. And that's why the menorah is lit on the left side of the doorway. Because the left side is where we need to be looking. We don't want to shine a light on the right side. I'm going to stop sharing so I can look at you all. We're not meant to be shining a light on the right side. The right side is where it's holy already. You don't need to shine a light there. You know how much Torah you're studying. You know how much mitzvahs you're doing. You know how much good stuff you're doing. You don't need another light there. We already pat ourselves on the back for all the good stuff. We need to shine the light on the left side. On the side that still has the ego. The side that still has the, I don't get along, the friction between us and the other. That's where we need to shine the light. Does this make sense? Yes? In, 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 in as simple terms as I can state it, for clarity purposes and for concise purposes, the mezuzah is on the right. The menorah is on the left. The mezuzah represents our spiritual accomplishments, and that's wonderful, but they could lead to ego, which disrupts relationships, which is why we light the menorah on the left side, so that we look inside and work with our ego or work to try to suppress bring down our ego, humble ourselves a little bit so that we can get along with the other. And that reclaims the right side. Because if we're studying Torah, but all that does is swell our ego and make us, 
you know, look down at others, that's not a kosher mezuzah on the right side. In order to have a kosher mezuzah on the right side, we have to address the left side, the darker tendencies of our personalities. And it's not, you know, some people have this ego. No, it's very egalitarian, very democratized. Everyone's got it. Everyone's got a left side. Everyone's got an ego. And everyone has relationships that are not so healthy because of our own egos. Well, I should apologize to them after what they did to me. They got to go first. Even something like that, right? I'm not going to do this because whatever. It's ego. It's ego. And, and, and unless we address the ego, the mezuzah is not kosher. No matter what we do on the right side, it's not going to be. It's, it's, it's not. Without getting rid of the ego, again, are we ever going to get rid of the ego? But without addressing the ego or shining even a light on the ego, then uh, the, 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 all the good accomplishments on the right side, they're all just fueling the fire of ego. And they still are surrounded with an aura of unholiness. Because remember, holiness is bittal, and unholiness is ego. Holiness is lack of ego, and, and unholiness is ego. So without addressing the ego, the holiness is a part of unholiness, almost. I don't want to, make, I don't want to get too dramatic on it, but we have to first have the menorah on the left side. And then we can have a kosher mezuzah on the right side, back inside. Only then... So again, I just let me go rewind the sentence and then finish off this paragraph. This is why the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lamp is, specific, is fulfilled specifically on the left. In order that one uproot the evil of the Yetzirah that dwells on the left side of one's heart. Only then can the mezuzah on the right, which is the abode of the divine soul, be truly successful in achieving its task. Without addressing the ego, the right side stuff is not, is not where it needs to be. This then is the deeper meaning of what is meant by saying that the mitzvah entails illuminating the outside. That's what, again, this is Kabbalah, right? <laughs> outside is not the street. Look, it's also the street. But for ourselves, for our personal work, outside is inside. This is what it means. Though it is indeed outside the domain of holiness, there is, also, there is a level of outside that is capable of being lit up. In other words, this outside is the ego. But the outside has potential. We shouldn't give up on it. This is the outside that could be lit up. For there also exists a level of outside that is incapable of being illuminated. And that must be totally repulsed and rejected. He, however, who is of a previously mentioned spiritual grade, one who does engage in Torah, Mitzvot, and Avodah, but inflexibly insists on the truth of his own opinions, he belongs to the level of outside that is capable of being illumined. Yes, there is an outside that is that is beyond today's discussion. There's the outside that is, that, is, that is just unholy. But we're talking about holy ego, Batman. No, holy ego, right? What is holy ego? Holy ego is ego that's driven by holy activities. So ego that's driven by unholy things. All right, that's, that's, that's truly outside. But ego driven by holy things, by, by spiritual accomplishments, that could be transformed into light. And when his outer aspect, sorry, this is the final paragraph, by the way. This is like drum roll. And when his outer aspect, the outer inner aspect, is in fact illuminated, then the mezuzah on his spiritual right finds full expression. 
so that through his Torah study and spiritual service, he realizes the divine intent in making within this lowly physical world a dwelling place for God. And this is how we conclude the discourse. It's by working on our ego and, and, and bringing light into the world in a humble way. It's by doing that and, and healing our relationships that we truly make this world and ourselves into a sanctuary, a temple, and a home for God. Let us say, Amen. So my friends, this takes us to the end. This takes us to the end of our discussion, the end of our series, Learning How to Love. As I said at the beginning of today's class, there's one thing that we've been saying consistently, and that is that the ego is the greatest obstacle to relate to relationships. Whether it's less, you know, less, more distant relationships or the closest relationships possible. The ego is the greatest kryptonite to relationships. How do we get rid of ego? The first step is shining a light on it. Lighting the menorah on the left side. The first step to, to addressing the ego is being aware of the ego. Because if we're not aware of it, then we, we justify ourselves. We pat ourselves on the shoulder and we say, I'm right, they're wrong, and one day they'll come around to the truth. And that's, that's a stance that comes from ego. That drips, that statement just drips of ego everywhere. There's ego oozing out of every pore of that statement. The moment we realize that yes, I think I'm right, and I have a holy platform perhaps to stand on, a righteous platform to stand on, but that only inflates my ego. The moment I know that, I can address that. The moment I light the menorah on the left side, I can start addressing the deep, dark crevices of ego that seem to be dressing up in holy garb. I mentioned very early on in this series the statement, the Hasidic statement, that sometimes the Yetzirah, sometimes the evil inclination, dresses up as a chassid, as a pious individual, with a talis, with a prayer shawl, and a hat, and ever, dressed up like a tzaddik, like a righteous person. But it's the same evil inclination. Don't get, don't get uh, um, tricked into thinking that holy ego is holy. Holy ego is still ego, and ego is still destructive. So in the final analysis, the greatest challenge of our generation and of every generation, whether it's the, temp- the era of the, temple, the temple's destruction, or whether it's even the era of Moses. Right? Moses was told his final battle, his ultimate battle of life, if you recall the beginning of this discourse, the final battle of his life is against Midian. What is Midian? Ego and divisiveness. Moses' ultimate battle, so this goes back 3,300 years, the ultimate battle of Moses of life is against ego, against divisiveness born of ego. When it comes to ego, it's easier to identify unholy ego and deal with it. But it's the holy ego. It's the ego that we feel as justified because, well, look, I am right, or I did study this, or I did, you know... It's that justified ego, the holy ego, that's the most insidious. And thus, we light the menorah on the left side to illuminate even, to illuminate even the the left side, even the outside, inside, even the ego, the holy ego, so that the mezuzah on the right side can shine. But ultimately, it's really not about the mezuzah shining, although it is partially about that. It's really about getting along with the other. 
It's really about extending love and learning how to love the other as ourselves. The only way to do that is by stepping down from our ego and telling ourselves, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me being right. It's not about how I feel. It's about what is right. And what is right is that we need to get along with each other. There's no other way to say it. We need to get along with each other. The world is healed when we are healed with each other. It's as simple as that. As long as we're holding onto something against someone else, whether we justified it or not, especially if we justified it, because it's, as we said today, it's, as we've said throughout the series, the justified hatred is really unjustified just with a, a shiny veneer on top of it, right? It's, 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 it's healing those relationships that heals the world. It's by no coincidence, Tony just asked, it's not by coincidence that we, that we, um, that we, uh, that, that we encounter this Hanukkah teaching on the last day of our session in this series. As I mentioned, the series began when it was originally in the t- aligned with the time of year that it was originally taught, Simchat Torah, and it concludes this week of Hanukkah as we kind of wrap everything together. Again, 1933, this discourse was taught. The, this is this is a, a discourse on our discourse, kind of. Uh, Based on this, on the discourse that we study, this is a, a second discourse, the conclusion of which ties this all of the themes together with Hanukkah. So, what better way to conclude it and to tie everything together than uh, than, than with this message of Hanukkah? I want to conclude, and this will be the conclusion with the origin story. And I mentioned it last week, and I told you I would tell it to you today, and now I'm going to tell it to you at the end. This discourse that, and you can feel the, the it's there's pain. And there's an urgency, the pain of, of, of any separation, of any animosity, of any friction between, between people. There's a pain in that. It should pain us when, when we don't get along with someone or someone when others are not getting along with each other. It, should, it shouldn't be like, well, that's people. It should, it should hurt us. This discourse was said by, originally by the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, when he noticed something amongst his chassidim. He noticed that somebody, that one chassid gave to his friend a kiddush cup. And his friend, instead of taking it and saying and filling it up with wine, he rinsed it out. And I know all of our doctors, and, and, and especially in a pandemic, would say, well, that makes sense. Makes sense. But not to a Rebbe. Not to a Rebbe. You take the cup of your brother and you rinse it out. That's why he said this. You would think that this discourse was said when there was like a major fight brewing in the community. This, this discourse, the origin story is somebody who takes a cup from someone else and rinses it out. And again, it's not about 2020. There's a different paradigm. We use hand sanitizer and gloves and masks and we rinse out our cups. Yes, in 2020. But in 1898, when you rinsed out a cup of your brother, your metaphorical, your... your, your your brother in spirit, it means that your, your heart is not fully aligned with the other. It means that you're not fully on board with that other guy. And he said, this is the beginning of a fracture within our own community. This is, this, we now need hechotzu. Now we need to talk about 
we need to talk about this. This was not, this was not when there was a world war breaking out. This is not when there was people that wouldn't speak to each other. This is simply rinsing out a cup. There's a sensitivity there. And again, I, I get, I understand that literally the context of this sensitivity is something that we're, we're, that means something else today in 2020. But there's a sensitivity there. There's a sensitivity there, how we view the other, how close we feel to the other. Do we rejoice with the other's success? Do we cry with the other in their pain? Or God forbid the opposite? Or God forbid the opposite? And how often do we hear of somebody else's success and we begrudge them for it? Or we hear, God forbid, of, or we hear of someone's successes. Wait, how often do we hear someone's success and begrudge them or, God forbid, hear of their pain? And on some level, I'm not even going to finish the sentence. And, 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 it, and, and it's, 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 the, it's the crack. It's the crack. I mean, that's already a, a, a larger fault line. That's already San Andreas fault level. Rejoicing in, God forbid, someone else's um, uh, suffering, God forbid. But, but the notion, the notion that we don't feel this brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever, we don't feel like family. That notion with the other, that's the beginning, that's the beginning of, of, of the crack. So if there's one message here, if there's one message here that we need to hold with us and carry with us long after today's session ends and next week we're going to start a new, a new text. But long after this session, this series ends, this is what I want to, want to leave you with. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to feel that love for the other, a sensitivity and a love for the other. That's our, that's, as Hillel said, to the fellow who wanted to convert to Judaism, who asked him, teach me Torah on one foot. He said, this is the entire Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn. But this is, the, this, is, this is the core. This is the core. This is Moses' battle. This is our battle. This is what destroyed the temple. This is what's destroyed every society that's ever fallen. It's always fallen from within. It always cracked from within. And then when the outside force came, the whole thing collapsed. It always starts from within. Whether within the Jewish community, whether within a larger community, doesn't make a difference. If we can't figure out a way how to get along despite our differences, if we can't figure out how to love each other despite our different ideologies and different positions, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not uh, doomsdaying anything. I'm just saying we. That is our calling. Our calling is to get to find commonality, to bridge the gap, and it begins with minimizing our ego. I want to thank all of you for being on this journey together with me. Whether you joined um, a year and a few months ago, session one in person, as some of you did, whether you joined midstream, whether you joined when we went online on Zoom with the, uh, with the, when, in, in March with the pandemic, whenever you joined, I, I, I truly value the time that we've spent together studying this. And I don't know of any any other topic that is as dear to me as this. I want to thank you for joining me and I hope that these messages have meant um, to you what it's meant to me. All right, next week we start a brand new text. The text that we're going to study is called Overcoming Folly. Overcoming Folly, this is the book. It's a very thick book, as you can see. This that we took over a year to study 
is a very thin booklet. Okay, this is a very thick book and it will take a decent amount of time. It is incredible. It's from the same author. It has a total of, it's called a, a hemshech. It's a total, which means a, a, a long discourse. This one has 28 discourses, each one consisting of two, three, or four chapters within each discourse. So it's quite long, but it's incredible. This will blow you away. The core, if you want to know, so what, what, what's it about? The core premise of this is exploring the rationalizations that we make for ourselves that keep us stuck in negative behavioral patterns. The idea here is that when things are clear to us, this is good and this is not good, we typically choose good. What allows us to choose that which is not good is when we tell ourselves, it's not so bad, right? Not so bad. And, and many other um, excuses. So this, set, this new series is going to be exploring all of the rationalizations that we come up with, all of the excuses that we tell ourselves, etc. Um, and if, I'm not going to go into them because literally this book goes into all the excuses. It explores also other topics. You will find this to be ex extremely profound and extremely relevant right off the bat. It's, it's like, it's deep, it's applicable, it's well-described and well-explained, very well-fleshed out. It's an incredible text to study, and I'm very excited to studying it with you. All right, so that's next week. I want to wish everybody happy Hanukkah, and as we celebrate Hanukkah, as you light your menorah tonight, night, night number four, as you light it tonight on the left side of your doorway, think about whether it's the outside door or the inside door, our custom nowadays, at least Chabad custom, is relayed on the inside of our house by the door, as you light your menorah, I'm just looking at the menorah. Um, as you, thank you, Mariana. Thank you. As you light the menorah tonight on the left side, remember this theme. Let's look inside and find those areas of ego that we can suppress so that we can truly love the other and heal the fractures and heal the world. Thank you. Thank you all for joining, whether locally or from far. Um, it's, been, uh, it's, 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 been, it's been powerful. Um, I see Adam linked Overcoming Folly. Yes, thank you, Adam, for linking it. And you can download it or read it online right there at the link. Um, I want to just mention everybody specifically by name now as we conclude. Donna, thank you. David, thank you. Adina Malka, thank you. Susan, thank you. Toba, thank you. Tony, thank you. Joy, thank you. Marnin, thank you. Joy, thank you. Fran, thank you. Mariana and Alex, thank you. Uh, Johan, thank you. Adam, thank you. Johan, you are joining us from Germany, correct? Or from Europe somewhere, right? Yes, that's correct. From Germany. Welcome. This is Johan's first time. So you joined us at the, at the grand finale, but the good news is next week we're starting a new one. So you perfect timing to catch the end and then catch the beginning. Johan, it's great to have you here. Great to study together. Live. It's, uh, it's incredible. All right, folks, this is truly an international edition of, uh, of Kabbalah and Coffee. And again, thank you. Happy Hanukkah. Oh, one more thing to, to mention. We have tonight a fireside chat on Hanukkah. Um, tomorrow, we're also launching our end of your matching campaign. If you can 
help be a part of that and help support all of the Torah that we're teaching and all the programs that we're doing. Um, if you can help support that generously, it would be uh, very, very much appreciated. So take a look for those emails that will be going out over the next 24 hours or so. It's a 36-hour campaign and it's a matching campaign, so please join and be a part of that. Um, Tuesday night, we have our Talmud course and you can check the website for more stuff coming up. Thank you again. Happy Hanukkah. Shavua Tov. See you all soon. Take care.